So this is week 31 in our series. Yeah, that one right there. Whose phone was that? I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. I heard somebody's phone. Um, This is week number 31. This is the passage that has to deal with the number of the beast and also the mark of the beast. So it's a very encouraging Thanksgiving style. Still got a lot of feedback if you can grab that, Gannon. Um, Thank you. We're going to do something a little different today. Um, So I have a friend back here, Kelly. Everybody wave at Kelly. She's back there on the welcome desk. Um, Are we ready for this? Okay, so Kelly, take that microphone and just very clearly and slowly tell everybody what the last three digits of your phone number are. Go ahead. 666. You hear that? Play that effect again. That was really funny. Play it. (laughs) All right. All right. Let's go back to the sermon. What would you... So, question. What would you think if you went up to the desk at the cell phone store and they said, okay, thank you for bringing your service over to Sprint or Verizon or T-Mobile or whatever it is, and here's your new number. So, 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 the last year, 666. What would you think if they assigned you that number? How many, how, many of you would, how many of you would say, how many of you would say, how many of you would say, nah, what else you got for me? So what if I actually told you, so Kelly, by the way, takes a lot of ribbing and kidding because of the fact she has this number. What if I told you it's actually a really cool phone number? Because here's, here's what I think what we're learning as we go through the book of Revelation, that reading Revelation and interpreting it the wrong way really turns it into quite a horror movie, doesn't it? But reading Revelation the correct way fulfills the whole purpose that John said he wrote it for, which was what? To be an encouragement and a blessing in difficult times, not to scare you of times that are to come. And I think bad interpretations of today's passage is one of the reasons that so many people are intimidated by Revelation, see it as scary and see it as ominous. Now, there certainly are ominous and intimidating things in this passage and in the book, but there's also the book is woven through with these symbols that that free us from having to read it like that. This passage contains two of the most talked about symbols in the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast and the number of the beast. You know, from vaccines to computer chips to barcodes to social security cards, Fear of this 666 number randomly showing up in every setting, it seems like everybody has a story. But both of these, the mark and the number, have been misinterpreted so often by so many, particularly just in the last, believe it or not, only 150 years. Most of these interpretations are very young. It would be comical if it weren't so dangerously misleading. So why does John put these images in Revelation? How is this blessed is everyone who reads this sort of promise supposed to be there when you have this mark and this number that just, oh my goodness. What if I could show you today through our exegesis going right through the passage with our three applications of scripture, what if I could show you today that as followers of Jesus, whenever we see this number pop up, it should bless us. What if John wanted his readers to reflect on 666 more often and not run from it? What would you think? Let's look at our passage today and let's see if we can tackle how we're supposed to live within times of a mark and a number. Then I saw another beast. This is the second beast. 
in chapter, in chapter 13. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it, if you guys remember the last time I preached a couple weeks ago, I explained that the beasts are not whose, they are its. The word it shows up almost 23 times describing both beasts. Never does it say he on the beast, or who, or them, it's always it. Its pronouns are it, okay? So, it, sorry. It had two horns like a lamb. It spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. By the, let me make sure I got, yes. Uh, by the signs that it has allowed to do, it, it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. So the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of, the, of his name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. A man. And his number is 666. All right, let's close in prayer. That's enough. We don't need to explain any of that. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about Nero's legacy. We've talked a little bit about Nero here and there. We mentioned him a couple weeks ago the last time I spoke. I want to start off with this imperial cult. So the real-time relevance of this passage, as John's audience is reading it, they're not thinking, wow, in 2023, this is going to be really relevant. That's not what they were thinking. They were thinking, wow, this is describing our times right now today. It would be stunning, actually. It was directly, all these images and all these symbols were directly connected to their life under Roman rule. And as we learned two weeks ago, John's readers understood the first beast, or at least an iteration of the first beast, was Rome's visible concrete power over their everyday life. The first beast symbolizes the dragon's control over every earthly government, past, present, and future. And it symbolizes its capacity to control or oppress all those who live under government rule. Can you imagine being a Christian today under constant oppression like the ones in North Korea or China or Russia or the Middle East? Well, that's how the first century Christians that John was writing to were living, under constant threat and oppression. And John's readers also, just like they knew what the first beast was, because of what they were living at the time, because of what they were experiencing, John's readers immediately knew this second beast symbolized the influence that Rome's imperial priesthood held over all of society. Let me explain. So the imperial, imperial cult imposed emperor worship through propaganda, social and economic pressure, and signs or claims of miraculous signs. And back in Revelation 2, way back in the beginning of our series, remember when Jesus was telling John to write these letters to different churches? Jesus wrote a letter to a church in the city called Pergamum. If you remember back to that series or that sermon, I told you that Pergamum was actually the regional capital of this imperial cult. So every region would have a specific city that was the center of this emperor worship, and Pergamum was one of the largest 
It was in the region all around that Isle of Patmos where John was imprisoned, where he wrote all those letters to. Matter of fact, in Revelation 2.13, this is the verse. I know where you dwell. This is the letter to Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And Antipas appears to be a martyr who refused to worship the emperor and was put to death for it. Everyone knew that Pergamum was the seat of the imperial cult's power in this region. Now Caligula was the first emperor to make worship of the emperor mandatory. But then Nero, when he was reigning, ordered construction of these temples throughout the entire empire. Now, you could practice any religion you wanted in the Roman Empire, but only after you first acknowledged your primary allegiance and your primary worship to the emperor. And then we have this emperor's mark. John's readers would have known exactly what this was. So each year, all the subjects of Rome were required at least once to go to one of these temples built by Nero all across the Roman Empire and burn incense on an altar and worship the Caesar. And once you had completed that requirement, you were actually given a certificate or a mark saying that you had fulfilled your purpose or your, or your um, primary job, which is to worship the emperor. Then you could go on in life and participate while you're in compliance with Roman culture. Now, if you refuse to receive this mark or this certificate, you became a persecuted person. And if somebody found out you had tried to fake your mark or just said, I'm not going to get the mark at all, you were barred from many essential economic activities, and, and not just economy, but cultural. Refusal to comply with this edict that you must worship the emperor first before anyone else resulted in severe punishment. Economic persecution, political and cultural persecution of almost every Christian living in the empire. Then John describes this number, 666. So ancient languages like Hebrew and Greek and Latin, I don't know if you know this, but they don't have numeric symbols. So what they would do is all these ancient languages would assign numeric values to the letters. It's kind of like what we do with our Super Bowl, with Roman numerals, right? So like, for example, this would be Super Bowl 666, okay? And we know probably if there is a Super Bowl 666, we know who's probably going to win it, right? I mean, clearly what the scripture's teaching us is the patriots are the antichrist. And their logo is the mark, correct? No, I'm just, it's just a joke. But you get the symbol, right? The 666. But here's the thing. Most people with any literacy at all knew how to calculate their own values or number of their name. It was like a game everybody would play all the time. So alphabetically speaking, because they all understood how, to, how these letters were assigned, this is an extremely relevant metaphor for those in the first century reading it. Can you see that? So obviously this makes a lot more sense when you look at the historical application than trying to associate a modern day concept to this number. But there's more, okay? Remember how I have taught you how John wrote Revelation around 90 AD? That's the best guess maybe 92, it's about 22 years after Nero had committed suicide. 
And after his suicide, I've mentioned this to you before, many believed, even hoped, that he would soon be resurrected from the dead to lead Rome again. And I explained how while Nero didn't come back from the grave, other emperors came along and the Roman Empire continued on. It seemed like it would never end, no matter who was in charge. Spoiler alert, Nero did not resurrect again from the grave. So watch this, though. These are the Hebrew letters... Remember, when you're spelling something with Hebrew letters, you would leave out the vowels, okay? So you leave out the Hebrew letters, and these are the values associated with each letter in Nero Kaiser or Nero Caesar's name. It's kind of like a transliteration, and these are the letters, and these are the numbers associated with them. You can see they all add up to 666. It's pretty cool, right? It's a kind of puzzle. Everybody could do this with their name, but everybody also knew what Nero's number was because he was the emperor. Nero's name and his failure to conquer death symbolizes for John's readers the fatal flaw of the first beast and why one day it will ultimately fail. More on that later. So that's the history, right? Some cool history there. I hope it didn't bore you too much, but it's interesting stuff. Look at the spiritual section. I want to talk about this unholy trinity we see playing out in chapter 13. So John is using the life of a believer in first century Roman Empire to give us sort of a 30,000 foot view of how the dragon is waging war even now to this day on the church or the, the woman's offspring as we have learned. John is describing how the dragon and both of his beasts, the first beast from the sea and the second beast from the earth, which are symbols together, he's describing how the dragon, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, uses both his beasts together in this tribulation that started when Jesus was resurrected. And as John says, we are now still partners in, right? He says that several times. And throughout this age that we're in, he uses this unholy trinity to wage war on the offspring of the woman or the church. What this unholy trinity is, it's a counterfeit of the holy trinity that we see in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation that we preached on, the one that works in the hearts of God's chosen, the one that marks his chosen for salvation. If you guys remember back, you might remember a sermon where I talked about the, where the scripture says he marks those who are his own. The father on the throne the lamb that conquers the world through his death and his resurrection, and then the comforter, which was the angel with the little scroll. That was the holy trinity in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and here we see this unholy trinity, which is a counterfeit. The dragon is the father of lies. We, we taught you that the word devil means deceiver. He's the father of lies of this unholy trinity. He's the source of all the power for both the first beast, which represents all governments, and the second beast, which represents the spirit of deception or the spirit of Antichrist. This unholy trinity, the dragon and his two beasts work together through the tribulation to tighten their grip tighter and tighter over this world. And John uses these symbols of the mark and the number to prepare, listen carefully, to prepare his readers, listen, as this unholy trinity tightens its mark on this world, tightens its grip, there's going to be tough times ahead in this tribulation that we are all partners in. And I want you to be armed with information that will keep you ready. So this spirit of Antichrist is very important to understand. 
Look at this, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I'll explain this sheep's clothing thing in just a minute. The first beast's dominance, we understand that, which is the government's, it's dominance and destruction, right? That's what it kind of represents, the physical ability for, for world governments to control what's going on in this world. The second beast is deception, but both of them come from the dragon, the father of lies. The second beast, he is actually, the second beast, it, sorry, is actually the power behind every manner of deception from the dragon. Everything that was swirling around the first century church that the enemy was trying to use to distract her or deceive her or to mislead her, that is the second beast. It's the dragon's ability to control the hearts and minds. Confirming he is the source of all the invisible abstract philosophies that were running around of the day. We've talked about the Gnostics a lot, haven't we, in our series on 1st and 2nd John and 1st and 2nd Peter. That's one example. See, the second beast, and this is even true today, listen carefully, the second beast is masterful at convincing the unredeemed to trust the first beast for hope, wisdom, prosperity, and peace. Did you hear? I'm going to say it again just in case you didn't catch that. The second beast is masterful at convincing the unredeemed to trust in the first beast, world governments, for hope, wisdom, prosperity, and peace. The second beast appears as a peaceful lamb. It's what the scripture says in the passage. He looked like a lamb. Lovers of peace. We just want everyone to get along. And compared to the first beast, you can see the first beast is clearly not a lover of peace, but the second beast says, no, no, no. The first beast just wants everyone to get along. That's why we have to be brutal, because we need to weed out all the things that are working against our system. The first beast is symbolized, if you remember, by the lion and the bear and the leopard predators. And the second beast, according to John, is symbolized by a lamb. You see how it relates to what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 7. The second beast presents itself as a lover of peace, pointing to the first beast as a conduit to bring that peace. The second beast is the spirit behind any thought. Listen carefully. The second beast is the spirit behind any thought or philosophy or idea that is used by the dragon to try to draw the church away from Jesus. And now we have the mark of the beast. See, when you went to a temple of the emperor to worship and fulfill your requirement to get your mark and your certificate. And this certificate provided you the privilege of participating in Roman society and culture and economy. And John uses that imperial priesthood certification to reveal how the second beast marks those he has in bondage. He uses what was going on in Rome as a symbol of a spiritual truth that's happening beyond the physical world. See, this mark, for us, it transcends any modern manifestation of technology you can dream of. It transcends any government system that many interpret it as. This is not a social security card, so relax. <laughs> it's not a vaccine. It's not a computer chip. It's not a barcode on our hands or our foreheads. It's not even a physical, earthly mark at all. It is a spiritual mark. Watch me, I'll show it. It's a spiritual mark with eternal consequences. It's a symbol 
of a mark of spiritual dominance, those who remain in bondage to the lies of the second beast and the authority of the first. And the mark on the forehead, we've seen this all throughout Scripture. We saw it in the Old Testament, so many places. I could, I could give you about 15 different references, but I just wanted to kind of skip all that for the sake of time. All throughout Scripture, there's this idea of a mark on the forehead symbolizing how the second beast influences the thoughts and the ideas of this world. The mark on the hand symbolizes how the second beast has control over the act of deeds of the unredeemed in this world. It's another example in today's passage of how evil tries to counterfeit, just like the Holy Trinity and the unholy Trinity that we're talking about here, evil, Satan, is always trying to counterfeit what God does with his chosen, the church. You don't believe me? Watch this. Look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 3. Remember this? Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have what? Marked the servants of our God on their foreheads. That was a promise, an encouragement, saying, yes, the beasts are going to run rampant, but do not unleash their power until the Holy Spirit and Jesus have marked the servants of God on their foreheads. Here's another example from um, 2 Corinthians. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ, has anointed us, who has also put his mark on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a what? Comfort or a guarantee. You see how the enemy always tries to counterfeit what God is doing with his elect? It's pretty cool, right? And it begins to start to, when you start to realize, okay, everything the enemy does is a counterfeit, now you begin to have some wisdom and discernment to be able to see, oh, now I see what he's doing. And then we have this number of man. 666. The number of man symbolizes a promise that the power of the dragon and the first and the second beast, as harsh as they may seem and as powerful and as evil as they are, church, one day they will fail. Just as Nero could not conquer the grave, 666 symbolizes how the first beast will neither be able to conquer death. The beast empowered by the dragon and the spirit of the Antichrist, get this, as controlling and as powerful as they are, they have no control over anything or anyone eternal. Listen to me, I'm going to say it again. As powerful as the dragon and the first and the second beast are, they have no power or control over authority over anything that is eternal, only those things that will be judged. Anything it exercises authority over and bondage over will one day perish and face judgment. Nothing the beast can do will endure forever. Its power to carry out its plans on earth relies upon its ability to control the unredeemed humanity's thoughts and deeds, the forehead and the hand. That's where the power of the first and second beast rests. It informs John's readers, no matter how powerful the first beast gets, one day it will fall to the king of kings. It's not a number to fear. It's almost, catch me here, because remember, there was a very big, you know, urban legend about Nero. Everybody knew what it was. It's almost a mockery of the future frailty of what the dragon and the second beast and the first beast have built. That number is the number of a man. Whew. What do we do with this? 
How do we live this way? Well, I've entitled the personal section, A Number to Remember. Here is the sermon preview this week. Let's be honest, we need a constant reminder that nothing humanity can build, accomplish, or promise is worthy of our hope or allegiance. Would you agree with that statement? So then why do we struggle with it so much? Let me ask you again. If you believe that statement, why do we struggle with it so much? See, some, some of our dear, and, and they love Jesus, they love Christ, they love the gospel. Some of our dear brothers and sisters interpret this second beast as some future charismatic evil leader of a one-world government. A brilliant silver-tongued antichrist with power to do miracles and deceive the world into global Satan worship. Now that interpretation would be another example of what I've called many times in this series prophetic narcissism thinking that all the prophecies in Revelation are about us, and they were irrelevant to John's first readers. See, that ignores the historical context, does it not? It leaves this passage completely irrelevant to John's first century audience, when we know it wasn't. See, the correct interpretation actually serves for John's audience and for us. It serves as a reminder of how we can tell the difference between real hope and the counterfeit hope of the dragon's lies. The dragon and the second beast, they represent control of the temporal, the unredeemed realm of this earth, and all of it one day will fall when our Jesus returns. The second beast, listen to me, it is every religion, philosophy, or politic that draws your hope and worship from Jesus and his heavenly kingdom into something that is created by human hands. The second beast is any message glorifying earthly wisdom, power, and glory of the first beast, which represented by the frail number of 666. The second beast is anything presented as a human alternative to the promises of what the kingdom of heaven will be. Wokeism, nationalism, capitalism, anarchism, communism, libertarianism, socialism, fascism, imperialism, all the isms, every one of them. Any message that convinces people that these man-made systems can be honorable, righteous, or hopeful if we just do it right this time is a lie from the dragon. Even a nation like ours founded on what seems to be noble ideas and causes, will all ultimately end up as a big bait and switch by the dragon. Did you know that? America might be a blessed nation. She is not a chosen one. We are the church. The second beast convinces the unredeemed to place their hope in these things. And then he marks those who do as though he owns them. Then without realizing it, here's what happens. Those who are marked, their daily obsession, obsession is on the first beast. That's what he says. He puts their mark and they worship the first beast. They're all in on this earthly system. Their thoughts, their actions, their passions, their money, all of it. That's why Jesus said we have to be sure that we fight this battle against the second beast every day because that hope is feckless. Here's what, that's what he meant in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Because here's really what the world is promising. 
you will save your life. Here's what he says. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit if a man gains the whole world, the whole 666, and forfeits his soul? That's what Jesus was warning us. Every day, you need to be on the lookout for the lies. As followers of Jesus, we must remember, church, none of these systems, all the ones, you know, I just want to read them because that was kind of fun. Let me just go back. It was, right? Wokeism, nationalism, capitalism, anarchism, communism, libertarianism. I almost wanted to leave libertarianism out, but I put it in there because it's right. Socialism, fascism, imperialism, all of those things. We don't need to live as those who are marked by the beast, hoping in the earthly wisdom and promises from the unholy trinity. As the unholy spirit of Antichrist beckons the world into darkness, God's Holy Spirit calls us out of darkness into light. You ready? Watch this. As the unholy spirit marks its deceit for death and judgment, God's Holy Spirit marks the faithful for redemption. As the unholy trinity deceives the hearts with earthly, earthly wisdom, God's Holy Spirit revives our hearts with truth in the gospel. Look what John says in 1 John, same author as Revelation. This world is fading away along with everything that its people crave. But that second beast is a powerful distraction sometimes, isn't it? And it succeeds sometimes, maybe temporarily, in siphoning off our kingdom passions for earthly ones, our kingdom time for earthly time, our kingdom talent, and our kingdom treasures for earthly treasures, right? Sometimes we all kind of give into that for a moment. You ever hear the phrase, oh, I got your number? <laughs> you know where it comes from? It's this. It means you know who someone really is, what they're really up to. That's where 666 comes in. Oh, yeah, dragon, I got your number. I know who you are, and I know your frailty. It's not a number to run from, but it is a daily reminder to pick up our cross and follow Jesus and ignore the lies and the deception of the second beast. I got your number. That's what it means. In the first century, when someone said, I got your number, it meant I have calculated your name. 666 reminds us that the dragon's earthly kingdom is just a temporal one. It's an evil imitation of the kingdom of heaven. 666 reminds us the dragon's unholy trinity is a mere imitation of the holy trinity that is working out your salvation right now, this moment today. 666 helps us to decipher and diagnose any possible potential fixation or obsession that we may be developing with the temporal things of this world. And we struggle with that, don't we? 666 reminds us not to give in to the false promises of this world's philosophies, this world's religions, or this world's political promises. 666 reminds us to daily check our hopes and passions at the kingdom's door to ensure that they are placed where they belong. 666 reminds us, as powerful as it is, the first beast is a mortal kingdom that will one day face final judgment and death. 666 reminds us the world is full of empty promises. But our future 
is a perfect promise described later in Revelation. I can't wait till we get to it. I'm sorry you'll have to wait for a few more weeks, but it's there, it's coming, and it's going to be awesome. But one day, as we've learned, our Jesus will return. And when all is revealed, you know what I think? I believe that we will be stunned by how complex and brilliant the lies of the second beast were. And we'll understand, wow, if the Holy Spirit had not first marked me with his mark, surely the second beast would have. Hmm? Until then, until he returns, we are called to live in peace and wisdom. And back to our favorite phrase, shrewd as snakes and peaceful as doves. Jesus, there is so much going on around us in the spiritual realm that we cannot see. We can't control it. We don't understand it all. We can't see it. But we know that you do. We're so thankful that you have put through your Holy Spirit and through your word and through the gospel, you have marked us for redemption and salvation. We're thankful that once that mark is there, we can't be marked by anything else. And Lord, as we walk through this life and sometimes we confess to you, Father, we get distracted by the things of this world. Lord, when that happens, would we please, would you, would you just bring up to our mind that all those things are frailty and they all pass away? They are the number of a man. They're just flesh. And Lord, when that happens, I pray that you would bring us to a place where we could confess that and repent of that and put our heart and our mind and our focus, our time and our talent and our treasure. Stop letting the world siphon it off and put it back into kingdom work. Lord, we love you. We thank you for marking us. We thank you for these reminders that we don't have to live in bondage to the lies of the deceiver. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, have a great week. We love you. See you next week. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Good to have you here. Hope you enjoyed it, man. Come back, all right?